This is Toledo Symphony Lab, a behind-the-scenes look at the world of classical music from WGTE Public Media and your Toledo Symphony. I'm Brad Cresswell. Joining me today are the Toledo Symphony's president and CEO, Zach Vassar, principal second violin and artistic administrator, Merwin Sue, and the TSO's marketing director, Felicia Canny. A little bit later, we'll be joined on the phone by the cellist Julian Schwartz, who is making a return appearance to the Paris style with the Toledo Symphony, performing the Cello Concerto by Antonin Dvorak. That concert, by the way, happening this weekend, Friday and Saturday evening at 8 o'clock p.m. More information at ToledoSymphony.com or 419-246-8000. Well, there are a couple of other pieces on the program as well, and we want to focus on one in particular as we begin the podcast today, and that is the Mississippi River Suite. It's by composer Florence Price, somebody who has uh, experienced a real resurgence of interest in her work over the past few decades. Uh, Merwin, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, Florence Price to begin with? Absolutely. I think Actually, the program as a whole is a really, really neat package. The Dvorak Cello Concerto is probably the most famous of these pieces, but it's this wonderful distillation of of Dvorak's Czech heritage Mm -hmm. with his time in America. The Smetana Moldau that begins the program Mm -hmm. is this tracing of an iconic river um, in Bohemia, and so it really makes sense to fill in that missing part of the package with an American River Voyage, and Florence Price's Mississippi River Suite has been compared to the Moldau in Mm -hmm. that you are actually physically tracing Mm -hmm. a journey of this great river, and you're, you know, you're kind of taking the music that might be heard along its banks, and then she she masterfully weaves all of this together into this almost pseudo-symphony, and it's a a wonderful piece of music, and it shows her gift of taking melodies that we've heard before Mm -hmm. in some way, shape, or form, and then, you know, treating them in a way that sheds new light on them. Well, Florence Price, we should mention, an African-American composer, African-American female composer, born in the uh, 1880s, I believe, Mm -hmm. and lived until the 1950s. Uh, somebody who was a pioneer, certainly, among composers uh, of African heritage. And the first uh, female uh, African-American composer to have a major symphony performed by a major symphony orchestra, the Chicago Symphony in the Mm -hmm. 1930s. It's really interesting because when you listen to her music today, you think, gosh, that, that stands up against any you know, of the great uh, symphonic creations of the late 19th century, well into the 20th century. And even this Mississippi River Suite is is something that always catches your ear for its inventiveness, Mm -hmm. you know. But she uses a lot of things like spirituals Mm -hmm. that are associated with the Mississippi River. You hear those melodies quoted directly throughout the piece. And and it's just a a wonderful uh, work of art. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting about Florence Price and her music, you know, there was a whole bunch of it that wasn't discovered until like 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Do you know this story? Zach, you want to tell that? The story I know of is that they found her her house. Is this that story you're thinking of? Yeah, it was was like her summer house. Yeah, and it was like an abandoned house, and it had been, you know, looted. A lot of stuff had been stolen out of it, and... Um, nobody had taken these manuscripts. So uh, the effort to put these manuscripts back together opened up a whole uh, new part of the repertoire for Florence Price, what we know of as as her music. Um, 
and uh, I think there was a violin concerto in yeah, there. Yeah, absolutely. Two of them, right? Yeah. Two violin concertos. Yeah. Yeah. A fourth symphony, I think they just read right. as well. Are that's they right. all finished? Well, that's amazing. Yeah. I yeah. think they were finished but not published. That's oh, right. Wow. Yeah. That's right. So, yeah. I mean, you just think about her as a composer, as a trailblazer, as you said, Brad, but, the, you know, there's this there's perfect alignment with what we're doing, not just from the river scene uh, perspective, Merwin, but, you know, the idea that, you know, Dvorak did the same thing and taking these folk songs and interspersing yeah. the sense of familiarity into a, a work of symphonic repertoire. Yeah. And it's... I mean, it it, it kind of picks up where he's leaving off, and yeah. with with a truly American voice, not a mm-hmm. a, a Czech American voice. Yeah. Um, well, Dvorak, I mean, famously tried to emulate the voice of the African American culture. That's right. In his New World Symphony, for instance, which was a direct inspiration for Florence Price's first symphony, mm-hmm. as well, and that's the one that uh, you know won the prize in the 1930s and was premiered by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Fun fact, um, she had uh, gotten divorced from her husband at that time. He was a lawyer. They lived in Little Rock, Arkansas, mm-hmm. and then all kinds of racial tensions. There was even a, a lynching nearby that uh, forced them to move. They moved to Chicago. But after she was divorced, she and her kids lived with Margaret Bonds, another awesome. Yeah, also an amazing uh, composer. Yeah, yeah. and, and the, the two of them entered that uh, composition contest together. Margaret Bonds won for, I believe, the song category. Florence Price won for the symphonic category. So, you know, their their careers, their trajectory was sort of in tandem. Margaret Bonds being a great friend of Langston Hughes mm-hmm. and Marian Anderson and introduced Florence Price to them, and they became you know, part of her circle as well. It's a really a wonderful story if, if folks want to uh, do a little more uh, reading about Florence Price. What was the impetus, uh, Merwin? I know, of course, you know, the Moldau, that's a natural fit for the Mississippi River Suite, but what, tell us about the, the early planning stages of this, this program. Was Florence Price somebody that y'all were familiar with already? We've programmed this piece before in various forms, right, Merwin? We've programmed Florence Price before. In various forms, I think the Mississippi River Suite has been kind of sitting on this list of stuff that I think, you know, sometimes you're looking for something that you want (laughs) that you want to get the chance to do. And we've performed movements of her E minor symphony before, but never the full thing. And, you know, that's a that's a wonderful piece of music. But I think sometimes programmatic pieces are easier to maybe introduce a new composer to the public. So I think with um, Mississippi River Suite, for people who aren't familiar with her music, in a way, the Moldau is kind of a primer. It's like you listen to the Moldau in a particular way. Mm -hmm. That skill set, how I'm listening to this piece, that's exactly how you want to listen to the Mississippi River Suite. That's a great point. And and she modeled it very much, as we mentioned, after Mm -hmm. the Moldau. This whole idea of, of, you know, starting in the north, of the river and moving to the south and doing it all in basically one long movement. Mm-hmm. That's how the, the, the suite progresses. I think the, the, one of the great achievements that Florence Price did was she was able to take what for Smetana was probably a 10 to 12 minute journey and somehow create the architecture to extend it over really a symphonic length. So, you know, I mean, not that we necessarily think of our concerts as always having an overture, a concerto, or a sim- and a symphony, but this really fills that symphonic part of the piece. Yeah. Yeah. 
All right, well, we're going to try to get uh, cellist Julian Schwartz on the phone now to uh, talk about his appearances in the Cello Concerto of Antonin Dvorak. Again, that concert is uh, this weekend, Friday and Saturday evening at the Paris Style. More information at ToledoSymphony.com or 419-246-8000. Cellist Julian Schwartz now joins us by phone. Hello, Julian. How do you do? Glad to have you along. You are uh, playing a wonderful concerto this weekend at the Paris style, the uh, Antonin Dvorak Cello Concerto. Now, Julian, you were here last for that wonderful uh, Lowell Lieberman Concerto premiere, right? Yes, I was. Yeah. I mean, that, that was a, a, a an amazing event, and to bring that masterwork into the repertoire with the Toledo Symphony was really incredible, and there's a wonderful video of that concert up on uh, online, and it's really been um, uh, an amazing journey with that piece. And yeah. now, of course, to come back to play the uh, pinnacle of the repertoire. Yeah, the Anthony Dvorak Cello Concerto. Before we talk about that, let's go back and get a little info on you. Give us a little, like a, a, a mini bio. I, I've got a little music for you. <laughs> Let me pull that down. Here we go. This is nice background music for you to... Uh, Tell us your story. Okay, well, I'm Julian Schwartz. I'm a cellist. I uh, grew up in Seattle, Washington, and um, I'm from a very musical family. Almost everyone is somehow involved in the arts or involved in music, um, and we're all making our own paths, and my path has sort of been as a cello soloist and chamber musician, so I travel um, around the country and uh, the world and play a majority of concerto appearances, but also um, very much chamber music with uh, assorted colleagues and set groups and, and as a guest. And I also am doing a lot of teaching, both at um, Shenandoah University down in Virginia and at NYU in New York City. So I'm, I'm really uh, thrilled to have a varied career, which <clears throat> gives me much joy in everything I do and never never a dull moment in traveling and in playing just the great music that I've always yearned to play. And an example of, of what I do is this weekend in Toledo, where I get to, to perform with this great orchestra as a soloist in perhaps the greatest cello concerto ever written. That's always a, a, a treat. So that's sort of what I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm all about. That's great. Uh, let me ask you how you got started on the cello. What what got you interested in that instrument? Well, it was sort of a, a done deal that we all all the children had to <laughs> play an instrument, um, and we all had to start with with piano. So because that gives it the basis and harmony and counterpoint and and clef reading and things like that. And then we would get we were told that we could choose any instrument we wanted. Wow. So there was a very, uh, there was, which was you know, a powerful position to be in. And there was a re really close family friend named Barry Lieberman who had, who was a double bass player at the time, um, and still is. And he had this Magini double bass made, made in 1595. And I looked at this thing and I thought it was so cool. And it was so big and so, um, 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 had such a presence and such history and how he played it was so inspiring when I was told, okay, so what instrument are you going to play? I said, oh, I'm going to play the double bass, no question. And their response was, um, how about the cello? <laughs> <laughs> they, of course, they, they, they sort of fibbed and said that there were no cellos my size, but my <laughs> parents, of course, knew, uh, sorry, no bass is my size, but my parents really knew that the cello had 
that type of repertoire. You know, the cellos and the string quartet, the cellos and the piano trio, and the cello has great orchestral uh, moments and concertos. So the repertoire and options for a cellist are, uh, in some ways, greater than a bassist. Yeah. So uh, they said I could switch later, which of course I never did, and I'm I, uh, I'm very lucky to to play the cello. That said, I wasn't really sure. So I tried a lot of different instruments. Every summer, I'd pick up a new instrument and rent it for a couple months and make sure that I had made the right decision. Because <laughs>、oh, who knows? Maybe I, wa- maybe I wanted to be an oboist or a clarinetist, and turned out that I was slightly better at cello than any of those. So I,、uh, those, those experiments were short-lived. Yeah, I, I'm just thinking through all the different instruments. I mean, if somebody, you know, if my parents came to me and said, "You can play any instrument that you want," <laughs> I, you know, I would have tried to find the most、uh, rare instrument. Possible, right? Right. right. You, you'd、It's、play.、Uh, yeah, I was, was going to say you'd、uh, contrabassoon. Like, what, what would you be going for, Brad?、Right. Glass harmonica. <laughs> Glass harmonica. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. Good one, Merwin. I'd be、yeah. a theremin virtuoso, like Clara Rockmore. <laughs> right. I love it. Well, that's. I mean, very, very vocal. Her playing. Yeah. You know. Absolutely. So, just saying, you can play beautiful stuff on the theremin. <laughs> But no Dvorak concerto for the theremin. Well, I mean, you could probably play a few lines. You could transcribe <laughs> it. <laughs> I love it. You know, you you should at one point when you're doing one of these chamber concerts, just pull out a theremin and do a little little encore for one of your concerts. <laughs> I'm、fun. sure you tried it at one of those summer、uh, intervals where you were testing other other well, instruments. Well, no, I actually got a I got a theremin as a gift for my bar mitzvah. Wow! <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh、and my it, gosh. Sat, it, it lay dormant in my、uh, in my in my closet because I got it and I just was opening you know gifts and I had no idea what it was. So I was like, "Is this a radio?" I was like, "No, it was these things." And what did I know? I didn't even know the theremin existed. So it just,、wow. it just lay there for a long time, and then eventually I was like, "Hey, Dad, what is that?"、And、he goes, "Oh my God, that's so cool!" <laughs>、oh, I love it. You、okay. are probably I- the only kid on the face of the planet who got a theremin for their bar mitzvah. I can't believe. <laughs> <laughs> That this actually does、uh, somehow raise you in in my、uh, level of esteem. So congrats for、oh, that. Oh wow! <laughs> glad the conversation went in this direction. Yeah, well, we you... all knew it was going to go to theremin talk, as it always does. <laughs> Eventually, yeah. I always thought that theremin sounded like a cold medicine. <laughs> I got、uh, theremin extra、flu. strength theremin. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well. Uh, let's talk about what you're bringing to、uh, Toledo with you. His、Julia. cello, yeah, your cello, among <laughs> other things. But the、uh, music at Dvorak—you've already referred to it, you know—is the pinnacle of the repertoire. I wonder.、Uh, let's say for folks who don't know it that well, how would you、uh, introduce it to them? Well, I would introduce it by saying that this concerto was born out of a reticence to write for the instrument as a, as a soloist. And if you look at really the history of the cello repertoire, it doesn't include many great cello concertos written by the most famous composers, who I mean Mozart and Beethoven and Brahms. Of course,、no. Brahms and Beethoven wrote、um, uh, sort of concertante works with other instruments, you know, the double concerto, the triple concerto. But they didn't feel that the cello had the power, or the, <clears throat> frankly, the the I don't know the the fleet fingers or the. Ability to play virtuosic passage work loudly enough、um, to be a viable soloist. So, really, in the in the 18th to 19th centuries, apart from a few gems,、um, there aren't that many cello concertos. And it took 
an, an inspiring performance of Victor Herbert's second concerto, played by Victor Herbert oh. in New York while Dvorak was in New York, to convince Dvorak that a cello concerto could work. Yeah. And that's where the sort of the, the, the setup comes in terms of Dvorak's time in the United States. And I'm hearing that Irish immigrant Victor Herbert's concerto inspired him to write something uh, and very heroic. And sort of it's like a, the, the piece I like to think of as sort of a triumph over this, over this history, this dearth of, of repertoire. And so it's a, it's a real journey. And if you hear the Victor Herbert concerto, it's also a dramatic work. And I think for Dvorak, he needed to eclipse that and to, to make something grander on a, on a much larger scale. So the Dvorak concerto, you know, um, a 40-minute work, um, has not only uh, the, the sort of a hero's journey of the cello, but it also has a variety of um, emotional uh, um, components, and mainly the... Dvorak's mourning of the death of his sister-in-law, whom he intended to marry prior to to marrying her actual her other sister. Oh. Um, so this really affected him greatly because that was, by all accounts, his one uh, true love. Um, that that uh, was they were very good friends, but it was unrequited love. And so he includes in the slow movement uh, a quote of one of his songs, which was her favorite. He includes he. He includes a an extended coda with a very mournful, almost a uh, sadness that um, it treats the cello more as a as a orator or a or um, a storyteller than a than a real concerto virtuosic um, coda. Uh, and so, for these components, really make it um, a, a large arc from this hero's journey to uh, feelings of love lost. Yeah. yeah. We were talking about that coda and off air, and just how it might be the greatest ending of any concerto. Yeah, <laughs> that's interesting to think. I mean, I've always found it, frankly, I, I, I'm happy to hear you say that because I've always struggled with it, musically speaking. So, how, how to play it, how to pace it, right? So, you have this this concerto, which is which is um, this last movement, which is fast and it is showy, and then there's a big brass chorale which brings you into this other realm. And how to set that up, uh, musically speaking, how quickly to get into that realm, or how mm -hmm. slowly in the pacing. Um, and so I've always, uh, I've tried it many different ways, and uh, we'll see what we come up with uh, together to, <laughs> yeah. to lead up. <laughs> to be continued, right, when you, when you get on the yeah. stage. But uh, how long have you been uh, playing this concerto? How long has it been a, a part of you? <clears throat> Well, interestingly enough, I um, it was my favorite concerto as a kid. I had that old recording of Ka Karyan conducting Mr. Slavostopovich, and um, that's okay. I just listened to it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> that one's I, all right. I listened to it all the time, and yeah. as a as a child, that was the one because I wasn't focused on cello music really. I was focused on all the music, string quartet music, and um, symphonic music, and so for me, it wasn't really cello-centric, my listening. But this one piece I listened to so much, and I was, I think, 10 or 11, and I had finished whatever finished, you know, in quotes. I, I had um, worked through a piece, and it was time for me to choose the next piece. And so I went to my teacher, and I said, oh, the Dvorak Concerto, of course. Mm -hmm. 
And how did your and, teacher um, respond to that? 12 year old well, kid <laughs> he said well i appreciate your you know enthusiasm but <laughs> you uh you know you you're not ready for this he, he said you could try it on the theremin first <laughs> <laughs> right right he told my mother my mother was like why well why can't he play the twice if he wants and you know he took her aside and with a with a whispering tone he said he really has no idea what he's getting into. <laughs> no, I love it. <laughs> so at that point, I was like, okay. But the, my, my history with it was the first chance that I could physically play it was the time that I've learned it and I, I developed with it. So when I was, that's when I was about 14 or 15 years old. And I used it as a, as a competition starter, as a, as a piece for me to showcase um, my talent or my playing on a local scale and I played it with a lot of local community orchestras in the Seattle area when I was that age. And in my more professional career, it has come about often, but never always. So it has been this kind of, I get the chance to play the Dvorak once or twice a season, and there's enough space in between each performance that I actually can have the time to reinterpret each well, performance cool. yeah. and uh, some pieces that i play almost every week uh, just it doesn't have that uh, maturation in the same way when i can constantly come back and um so i i gave a performance of this in october and now uh this weekend in in uh, toledo and one more in january but it's a uh it's really a it's it's the cornerstone of the repertoire so it, it deserves the time to reinterpret and to and to come up with solutions for its grandeur. Yeah. Julian, you, you mentioned the Rostropovich uh, von Karajan recording. He recorded it several times. He felt that he always had something more to say about it. But isn't there yeah. a story about you when you were young um, with Rostropovich? Uh, Rostropovich, by the way, had a wonderful relationship with the Toledo Symphony and performed the Dvorak here twice. Uh, toward wow. the end of his his career, yeah, no pressure, no pressure. Um, <laughs> right, right. But wasn't there some interaction with you and Rostropovich when when you were a kid? Uh, there was. So I, I was lucky that I got to go to all the symphony concerts that were being presented by the Seattle Symphony when I was growing up, and really they were some of the greatest artists that came through and had relationships with my father. And um, for me as a child, it was just absolutely inspiring but when there was a cellist sometimes i got to play for him or her rarely but in this case it was when i i think i was six or seven years old and i had just begun the cello and rostropovich came over for dinner and he and my father are drinking and my cello my russian cello teacher came and they were all having fun and we and they encouraged me to to, to play something and of course it was a little beethoven contradance a, a, a sort of a throwaway, nothing in a piece, but I performed for Rostropovich, and his uh, comment was, um, don't practice so much, I have a few good years left. <laughs> oh, wow. wow. And, uh, so nice compliment. Was, uh, I love it, was, it. it was lovely. He was, uh, he was uh, an incredible man and an you know, mm. amazing soul and yeah. For for a, for a child, it was it was very. He gave me a wonderful story to tell. I love it. I yeah. love it. Uh, I want I want to ask you one more question, and and I know you have to get back to your your work. Um, this um, this concerto famously keeps you waiting for the entry of the cello, 
Um, yeah. Some recordings go <laughs> three minutes, 40 seconds before the cello makes any noise. <laughs> what right. the heck is going through your mind in those three minutes? Don't mess it up. Don't mess it up. Oh, come on. The Beethoven concerto goes much longer, and we have to stand up. He's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, I get to sit down, so it's, it's, I'm relaxed. I'm uh, listening. But what's going through my mind is basically, um, I hope I forget, I hope I don't forget to come in because I'm listening to this beautiful music. Mm, right. And that's also something that I always... Uh, um, I'm thinking about because I'm always listening so much to what's going on and to the beauty being produced on stage and all the themes being presented that I sometimes forget that I'm going to have to play soon. Yeah. So I well, get wrapped up in, in that, in that sound world. I get wrapped up in the, 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 the stage and the, the feeling of the stage. And then it's like, Oh, got to focus. Wow. They could just uh, put a little red light down there by your by your feet that turns on when it's time to snap to attention, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I think it's um, also pedagogically speaking, it's in, it's important to be able to play without having been warming up until the moment you play, mm-hmm, because yeah. that is reality of playing concertos with long tutti opening sections. Yeah. When it's uh, you have to sit there on the stage for four minutes and you you must come in poised and ready and with your most loops vibrato and hmm. with the biggest sound. And, and so um, it, it's an exercise in, uh, in uh, um, playing a little bit cold. Yeah. Your cello has so. such an amazing sound. That's one of the things that impressed me so much Thank when you were here a couple of years ago. I feel like it kind of was written for this, con- or that, that it was built for this concerto, even though it probably predates the concerto. Yes, yeah, so the, it, it predates the concerto by, you know, 100 20 years or so. Um, Is that all? Actually, more, 130. <laughs> anyway, but it's, uh, it's, it's an amazing instrument, and it's, it has an amazing projecting tone. And that's the one thing that you can't um, play this concerto without, which is a robust tone, a, basically playing loud enough that the orchestra doesn't need to sacrifice emotional uh, quality in their own tone for you to be heard as the instrumentalist. Of course, that was the main concern, why mm-hmm. the concertos weren't written for the cello in the first place, was projection. Yeah. And so that's, that's uh, like I say to students, I mean, if you do the most beautiful thing, if no one heard it, did it happen? <laughs> you know? Um, it's like that's the great. tree falling in the forest. That's right. right. You know, so sometimes I, I, I feel like, oh, wouldn't I love to play a little less? Or wouldn't I? But, you know, the sound is so important for the audience to hear, for them to latch on to. That's the first thing they hear, and that's the most important thing. So to have a great instrument is, of course, um, a blessing. But to use it in a way that makes sure that everyone can hear the beauty that you're trying to produce is something that's very, uh, very important. And with this particular instrument, it's nice that uh, I can really play loudly without it getting harsh, which is mm-hmm. the fear of many cellists, which is that when you play really loud, it gets a little gruff and a little harsh. Mm-hmm. And I um, pride myself on, on not getting to that point yet still being able to fill the hall with sound. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, I know, Julian, you're on a tight schedule today, but uh, thanks so much for coming in and, and previewing this for us. We really look forward to your, your uh, performance. It's happening this weekend at the Peristyle, Friday and Saturday at uh, 8 p.m. 
And uh, yes, you'll be performing and the cello concerto. We have a uh, special encore prepared, which I won't speak about, but um, <laughs> it's going to be very exciting. So well, too late because you just spoke about it. But <laughs> well, no, I mean, we don't know what it is, and I'm just trying to encourage people not to go to the parking garage early. Right. <laughs> yes. Right. We'll be prepared for that theremin encore. <laughs> This program is a production of WGTE Public Media in collaboration with our sponsor, the Toledo Symphony, with generous support from the Rita Barber Kern Foundation. You can download episodes of our program as a podcast by going to our website at wgte.org lab. You can also subscribe to us through your podcast app of choice, including Apple and Google Podcasts. My thanks to Zach Vassar, Merwin Sue, Felicia Canney, and of course our special guest cellist Julian Schwartz, I'm Brad Cresswell, and you've been listening to Toledo Symphony Lab from FM 91.